And we're going to have some notes. Uh, Sandy, can you click us through that? Um, just bring that up and I'll control it from here. Um, that would be great. Thank you. Perfect. So we're going to start on a brand new journey. And I have to confess to you, this is going to be a long one. This is going to be a long journey. We just walked through the last five weeks, some five core beliefs, fundamentals of our faith. That was a nice short five-week mini-series. Uh, this spring and early part of summer, we spent 14 weeks in the gospel of A- or the, the book of Acts. Uh, don't, don't listen to what I just said. The book of Acts, not a gospel. The book of Acts. We spent 14 weeks in there and had a great time together. And uh, at the start of the year of 2017, we walked through about six or seven weeks, Romans chapter 8. So I know we're used to a little bit shorter series together. This is going to be a long one. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John for about the next year. Okay? We're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And you say, Adam, why the Gospel of John? That is a great question. The Gospel of John uh, has been a book that has changed people's lives. Right? If you were, if someone were to come to you and say, and they use your name to say, I want a book of the Bible to start reading. I've never read the Bible. I want to understand the Bible. I want to understand who Jesus is. What book of the Bible would you say? I think the majority of us would say John. Why? John chapter 3, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him uh, will not perish but have everlasting life. Right? Most famous verse in all the Bible. You Go to a football game, you, maybe you watched some college football this weekend like I did. You saw, I saw John 3.16 and someone holding that sign up. That's where you would take someone is the gospel of John. And you see, there's a question that is the question of all of history. A question that you and I have to personally ask, each one of us. We have to have an answer for. And that question is, who is Jesus. Who's Jesus? About a year ago, um, last fall, we went through the life of Christ. We were going through redemptive history through the Bible. And we were talking about Christ, who he was. And I was at Starbucks over here on Ward Parkway at the Ward Parkway Mall. I like to do sermon prep out of the office um, just to you know, be in the community and, and meet people. And I was at Starbucks over here at Ward Parkway Mall. And I had you know, my Bible. I had some notebook paper. I was preparing uh, one of the sermons on the life of Christ, and, and I had some commentaries out there. I'm sure I just stood out like a sore thumb, and someone came up to me, uh, a young guy who lives here in the area, he came up to me. He said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I've been watching you. He's like, can I ask you what you're doing? And I said, yeah, I'd love to let you know I'm the pastor at Leewood Church up, up, uh, up there on 83rd and State Line, and our church... Um, we're going through a series I'm teaching through the life of Christ, hitting some highlights of, of who Jesus is. And just as, as a pastor, someone who studies this, give me your opinion on who Jesus Christ was. Who do you think Jesus was? We sat down, we had a good little conversation um, about who Jesus was. That's the question of all of history, is who was Jesus? Who was he? And really that question, as we've talked about the last five weeks is really the core of Christianity. Who is Jesus Christ? Because how you and I interpret who Jesus Christ is, really, that causes us to interpret this scripture, 
but also it, will, it causes us to have a perspective and interpret history. So who was Jesus Christ? The Gospel of John helps us un- answer that question. Helps us a- answer that question. And honestly, all the Gospels do. The Gospel of John, this is just my opinion, take it for whatever it's worth. The Gospel of John is my favorite Gospel. I really like the Gospel of John. They're all good. They're all really, really good. I just like the way John writes. I like his perspective and explaining on who Jesus Christ is. And so together for the next year, we're going to go verse by verse, mining out. Think of this as like we're miners. Mining out the truth of who is Jesus. Now I know that all of us here, each of us here are one or two groups. One, you could be sitting here today and you're a little skeptical about who Jesus Christ is. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're here. My prayer for you is that as we walk through the Gospel of John, your questions will be answered. Then for those of us who are believers, that we know Jesus Christ, and we've believed on him through our salvation and our redemption, that we would, our belief would be strengthened in who Jesus Christ is. Because that's really the purpose of the Gospel of John. So, I'm about to do something really, really bad. If you're really into literature and you're into literary things, like my wife, not my world, but Mary Lane, I'm about to do something really, really bad, okay? Turn to John chapter 20 and verse 30. You say, Adam, what are you doing? Doesn't the gospel of John start in one? Like, you're not supposed to read the end of the book before you read the beginning, right? Isn't that right? I'm going to do it anyway, okay? So turn over to John chapter 20. I'm going to break all kinds of rules this morning. But turn over to John chapter 20 and verse 30 and verse 31. This is the very last two verses of the Gospel of John. So you might be saying, Adam, why are you taking us all the way to the back? Shouldn't we start in John chapter 1 and verse 1? Why are you taking us all the way to the very end of this book? Because I want us to see why this book was written. Anytime you read the Bible and you're reading through Scripture, you need to be asking yourself, why is this being written? What's the point? Why is this included in the canon of Scripture? Why has this been inspired of God? Why does God want this in here? What's the point? Now I'm going to be reading um, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 out of the Christian Standard Bible. I'm trying a different version of preaching from. It's a brand new version that's just been released this year. It's a really good, strong version. Um, I encourage you to check it out. Maybe buy it on Amazon. Christian Standard Version, CSB. I think you'll enjoy it. That's what we're going to be going through with the, the Gospel of John. But look at that, verse 30, John 20, verse 30. It says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if we were to find a thesis statement for the Gospel of John... It's verse 31. The Gospel of John is often called the book of signs. There are seven signs given in this book to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
So verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This book is written to help and convince people to believe on Jesus and have eternal life. That's why this is written. So that all of us would believe in who Jesus is and then because of our belief receive eternal life. So the key to eternal life and salvation is not a denomination, is not whatever else. It is about your belief in who Jesus Christ is. So this book was written to help us and convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So this purpose is clear here. And it could be thought that, okay, when we read this, we could think, well, this book was written for those who are unbelievers. This book is written for people who don't believe in Jesus Christ to convince people who don't believe in Jesus Christ. And that thought is true. If you have that thought right now, you're thinking correctly. Yes, this book was written for those who don't know Jesus, who aren't believers. But did you know that this book is also written for believers? It's written for both unbelievers and believers. You see, believers in Jesus Christ... We must keep believing in Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, verse 6, we'll look at this eventually. But John 15, verse 6, it says, If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. So Jesus said to his disciples, remain in me. Keep believing in me. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes my belief is weak. I don't always believe Jesus. I start to question, well, this book is written for us as believers. In those moments of uncertainty and of unbelief, this book, this gospel is written for us. So I hope this book will be an encouragement to you, that as you learn to grow in your belief in Jesus, Jesus also said in John 8, verse 31, he said, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. So when John wrote so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life, eternal life, he meant that he is writing to wake up believers, to stir our faith, to grow our faith in unbelievers, that they would be woken up through the Holy Spirit to their need of Jesus, and then for those of us who are believers, that we would maintain and our faith would be strengthened. Faith family, I just want to encourage you, this gospel, the gospel of John, there's no better book in the entire Bible to help you keep trusting Jesus above anything else. So I encourage you for the rest of your life, go back to the gospel of John. When you are having doubts, when you're not sure of who Jesus is, and is this all of this real? Is this faith? Go back to the Gospel of John. Cling to it. Cling to it. So we as a church, we're going to read, we're not, well, we will read, but we're going to go through the Gospel of John verse by verse for about the next year. For about the next year. So the first question we have to ask, remember, when we read the Bible, we got to ask questions, right? we got to ask the question, who wrote this? Who wrote this? So anyone want to throw a guess out there? Who wrote this? All right, I'm lobbing a softball out there, okay? Who wrote this? Who wrote this gospel? 
John, good. All right, if you had said something else, we would have had, we had, well, we have a long way to go. Okay, the Gospel of John was written by John. And who was John? John was one of the 12 disciples. He was also an apostle. He's mentioned five times in this Gospel, but his name is never mentioned. Maybe he just didn't want to be uh, arrogant, prideful, whatever, but his name is never mentioned in here. But when it is mentioned, he was mentioned as a disciple of who Jesus loved. Jesus and John had a deep bond. They were like brothers. They were really, really close. So John, under the inspiration of God, writes about his experience and his understanding of Jesus. You know what's so cool about the Gospel of John? There's probably no one who's ever walked this planet who knew Jesus like John did. So we get an inside look on this. So John wrote this so that we could believe Jesus like he believed. So turn now to John chapter 1. We're going to go back to the beginning. Turn over to John chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, what this passage, these 18 verses that we're going to look at together, what we're going to see here is John is laying the foundation for the entire book, okay? If we were to view the gospel of John like a house, we're going to look at the foundation first. John here, he's going to dig us the foundation. He's going to pour the concrete in. He's going to lay out the foundation and introduce us to a lot of the themes in the Gospel of John. And here in 18 verses, okay? He's going to give us some pictures of who Jesus is. He's going to paint a really broad stroke. Now, as we continue in the Gospel of John, we'll zoom in at more specific examples of who Jesus is. Here are these first 18 verses, the, the prologue the introduction to this book, John's going to paint a really big picture of who Jesus Christ is, okay? So we want to unpack this so we can get to know who Jesus is, all right? So look at John 1 and verse 1, and I'm going to read it for us. We're just going to start with this, bite-sized pieces, okay? Verse 1. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we need to just stop at one verse, okay? We could spend an hour on this one verse, okay? We don't have time for that. We've got to keep moving. But here in verse 1, we need to stop and unpack this verse. So before we go on, let's just come to a little bit of understanding. First, to understand this verse, and really the rest of this passage, and quite honestly, everything in this world, we need to figure out the meaning of the word, word. Okay, so look there. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what is John talking about here? So this book, this Gospel of John, was written in the Greek language. Now don't go to sleep on me. I know I have a tendency to do this too. When preachers and teachers start talking about Greek and Hebrew, we start to go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. Okay, stay awake. This book was written in Greek. Okay, not English. It's written in Greek. And in the Greek language, which John uses here, the word there that we see, the capital letter word, is the Greek word logos, not lego. I was talking to Isaac about this uh, this week, and he was saying lego? No, logos. Logos. That is what this word means, logos. So now you know a little bit of Greek. Now to you and I, that does not mean much. That this word here means logos. That doesn't mean anything to you and I. Okay, that doesn't mean much. But in the Greek language, that's huge. This is massive. 
It's huge, so don't miss this. Because John is using the word logos here. This carries a lot of cultural and linguistic weight. So, you see the Greeks, very intelligent people, the Greeks said that the universe has a logos. It has an ebb and flow to it. And our lives need to be in alignment with this logos if we want life to go well. Kind of the idea of karma. Okay, That's what they heard when they heard the word logos. That's kind of what they thought. The ebb and flow of life, almost like karma. They believed that. So the Greeks be- believed to figure out the logos. You had to figure out what logos was. And then align yourself with it. But there was only a problem, or a huge problem of it. People couldn't agree on what Logos was. If you talk to the Stoics, the Greek Stoics of the day, they they understood Logos to be the rational principle by which everything exists. So it's some rationale. That's what the, the Stoics believed Logos to be. Some Greeks believed that Logos was inner thought, reason, or even science. Other people believed that Logos was the order of the world. It was the structure of the cosmos of the whole, okay? Now, I know we're getting out there a little bit, but that's what they believed it to be. So John uses this word Logos, and when he uses this word Logos, what is he saying here? What is he establishing? He's establishing to anyone that could read Greek, he's saying this Logos is not an impersonal order of the universe or principle, This logos is not inner thought or reason or a science. It's not some philosophical idea. It's a person. Now, if you and I were were Greeks, we would read that and we would fall over at this first verse. For someone to say, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God and the logos was God. That is an earth-shattering statement. So what John is doing here, he's dropping a bomb right off the bat. This is a cataclysmic explosion of a verse that he's establishing right here. He is saying this Logos is at the center of the universe. This Logos is not impersonal. It is with God and it is God. Boom, he just lays it out there, doesn't he? He doesn't waste any time explaining on who Jesus was. We see all throughout the Old Testament a mention of the Word of God. We see that God spoke the world into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Psalm 33, 6 says that by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. And so this Word of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word. If you're filling the blank notes there. Jesus is the Word. He's at the center of the universe. Jesus is at the center of the universe. He's the center of who God is. And that is the thought that comes into conflict with our inner being, doesn't it? When we realize that, that Jesus is at the center of the inner universe, there's going to be a conflict, a confrontation there. Why? Because in our sinful human uh, thinking and our sinful human way of living, we think, I am at the center of the universe, right? The world revolves around me. It's about what I want, when I want it, how I want it. It's about what I believe about something. John is throwing that human idea out. And he's saying, no, Jesus is the center of the universe. It's all about him. 
So Jesus is the world. Now let's keep going. John chapter 1. Now let's go down to verse 2. It says, He, so this Logos is a person. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Overcome it. So here John begins to paint a picture of who Jesus is. He's getting his brush out, and he's painting. This is who Jesus is. This is who the Messiah is. And he starts out describing who Jesus is. And now here's what's interesting about the way John's writing here. John spent three years with Jesus. But John doesn't want you and I to take that long to figure out who Jesus is, does he? He's saying in five verses, here, this is who he is. In five verses, John has boiled down what he learned about Jesus in three years. He's boiled it down to five verses. He just lays it all on the table. This is who Jesus is, and now digest it. John wants us to be clear from the beginning of this book of who we're dealing with. From the very beginning of this book, John wants us to understand the majesty and the deity of Jesus Christ. So, he says first that Jesus is the eternal creator. Jesus is the eternal creator. He says, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that had been created. So John lays that out immediately. Jesus is the eternal creator. As a part of the Trinity, we talked about this for a few weeks ago, as a part of the Trinity, Jesus has always existed. And he participated in creation. He said, Adam, really? Jesus participated in creation? Absolutely he did. Hold your finger here and turn over to Genesis chapter 1. Turn over to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26. John chapter 1, verse 26. And then God said, I hear pages rustling, so I'll slow down. I know I talk fast. I'll slow down for just a minute. Verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. God's creating the world. He's creating the universe. And look at this. This is, this is really cool. Then God said, let us. Circle that pronoun, us. I think it's a pronoun, right? Us, circle that. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God said, let us make human beings in our image. Who was that us? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus was there. He's the eternal creator. He has always existed. His life did not start when he was born of the Virgin Mary. No, that's not when his life started. He had existed for thousands of years before, millions of years before, billions of before. Jesus as God never had a beginning. You say, Adam, how does that work? I don't know. Tell me. He never had a beginning. He's always existed. And that's what John says. He says, he was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him. And then we go on to continue to see that Jesus provides life. 
Well, one, yeah, physical life. He created it. But it's deeper than just physical life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and life was the light of men. We're going to see this over and over again. John's going to use this phrase a lot. In the Gospel of John, he's going to say, Jesus came to bring eternal life. He said that at the end, John 20, verse 31, so that you may have eternal life. He's saying Jesus is that life. He provides eternal life. And then he says Jesus is not just life, but he's light. He is the revealing light. Now here's why Jesus came right here. What John is saying in verses 4 and 5 is that Jesus came and he revealed to this dark, ignorant world true knowledge and true mortality, morality. Jesus came and he revealed true knowledge and true morality to the world. You see, every one of us here this morning, we are on a quest for truth. I hope you're here this morning on a quest for truth. Every one of us want to know the truth. We want to know what's real, whether you admit it or not, and we all express it in our different ways based on our personalities and other things. But we are all on a quest for truth. We want to know truth about the universe. We want to know about the meaning of life. We want to know what is right and what is wrong. And what John is saying, Jesus came and like a flashlight in a dark room revealed truth. He revealed it. He's the revealing light. You might be here sitting here and say, Adam, well, there is no absolute truth. Like, is truth absolute? Is there a truth that applies to everything? Well, okay. First, if you say there is no absolute truth, and I've run into those people, maybe you have too. There is no absolute truth. Well, first, that's an absolute. You're contradicting yourself. And second, to say that there is no truth is to contradict yourself because to say there is no truth, you're making a truth claim. Okay, you see what I'm saying? By saying there is no truth, you're saying it's true that there is no truth. So you're contradicting yourself, okay? So there's got to be something. There has to be a standard of truth. There is truth out there. Now, we all can debate what truth is, but there has to be truth. Has to be. So what each one of us as human beings, we have to come to terms with, is what is the standard of truth? What's that standard? What's the standard of truth? Something has to measure truth. There has to be some kind of measuring stick of truth. And see, here's the reality. It can't be you or I. I can't be the measuring stick of truth because I have flaws and I have biases. You can't be the measuring stick of truth because you have flaws and you have biases. So if we are, all of us together, flawed and have our biases, we can't correctly interpret truth. We need something bigger than ourselves to show us truth. We need something greater and more knowledgeable than us to show us truth. We need someone who knows all things because he created all things. And you know who John is saying that? That's Jesus Christ. Because he was from the beginning. He's the eternal creator. He created everything. He's existed forever, and he's the light. He reveals truth. So if you want to know truth, what John is saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look what he, look what he said. Look what he did. Look how he lived his life. 
look at Jesus. He's the revealing light. And so he's saying that. Let's keep going. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Not this John. Different John. We'll explain this in a minute. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. That word believe is all over the place in this gospel. So get used to hearing it. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So now we're introduced to a guy named John, John, who was sent from God. Now we could think, oh, this is the writer John. John's talking about himself. No, that's not what he's talking about. Well, he's being referred to here as a guy named John the Baptist. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time with John the Baptist this week. Next week we will. So come back next week if you want to meet a really eccentric guy, John the Baptist. So we'll talk about John the Baptist next week, but basically, if you want to know who John the Baptist was, and we'll talk about this more next week, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He's laying the groundwork for Christ. He's getting the people of Israel ready for Christ. That was his role. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's keep going. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the, or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So what is John saying here now? John is really beginning to get to the core of why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? Why did God leave all the glories of majesty of heaven and become a person? Isn't it interesting here what John says is that though Jesus created the world, the world didn't recognize him. They didn't know who he was. He came to his own people, the Jewish people, and they didn't receive them. Because there was, and is today, Jesus is rejected. Right off the bat, John is saying, not everyone believes who Jesus is. Though he created the world, the world doesn't recognize him. He came to his own Jewish, Jewish people, and they didn't know him. They didn't accept him. They didn't receive him. So we see the rejection of Jesus. Jesus is rejected. So John is establishing right up front, and one thing he mentions is not everyone is going to receive Christ. Not, all, not everyone is going to believe this. Though he created them, not everyone's going to believe it. Romans 1.25, write this down. You can go back and read it later. Romans 1.25, it says that the world, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator. Even today, there are people that are hostile to the idea of Jesus in absolute truth. We live in a Christless society today. Our culture is no longer Christian. Don't let anyone tell you that. Our world is, our culture, our American culture is becoming more and more anti Christian. It's the reality. John says, don't be surprised by that. I think sometimes we as Christians, we're shocked. That the world rejects what we have to say. John's saying, don't be shocked by that. Since the time Jesus came, people have been rejecting him. Even today, there are a lot of people that are hostile to that idea. It can be believed, and many people believe that Jesus and Christianity is oppressive. 
So why would I believe in a Jesus? Why would I believe in a God? Why would I believe in a belief system, Christianity, that is oppressive? But see, that's that idea that that's oppressive, that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus was all about. Because Christianity, we believe as Christians that before salvation, every human being is a slave to sin. There is no freedom. Sin is oppressive and dehumanizing. But then Jesus came and he gave up some of his own rights as God. And he came and gave us freedom. Spiritual freedom. So in reality, Christianity is about spiritual freedom, not bondage and oppression. So don't reject Christ. Receive him. To receive salvation, we must believe in who Jesus is. If you want salvation, you cannot believe in something else other than Jesus. That's universalism. You must believe in Jesus to receive eternal life. There's no good thing you and I can do to receive eternal life. There's no amount of money, no amount of of time that we can donate to receive salvation. It's only through believing on Jesus Christ. We must receive him. And we're going to see over and over again in the Gospel of John, John's going to say, believe, 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 believe. Jesus Jesus must be received for salvation. But let's keep going and let's wrap this up. Verse 14. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That should scream to us Christmas. Advent. Right there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. And the glory as the one and only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. And exclaimed. This is the one of whom I said. The one coming after me ranks ahead of me. Before, ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. So now we come full circle with this word logos. Again, that word logos, what the Greeks believed, they believed it was an ambiguous idea, an impersonal order of the universe. But what is John saying? He's saying, no, the word was flesh. So not only was he God, he was the eternal creator, he was flesh, he was a human being. And John says here in verse 14, we observed his glory, that we as the disciples, we observed his glory. We understood who he was. We understand how glorious the Logos was. We were able to observe him. We were able to touch him. We were able to see him. The word became flesh. It's not an ambiguous world order. It's a human being. It's God in the flesh. And we see that he was full of grace and truth. What does the word grace mean? Grace means undeserved favor with God. So Jesus came. This is so neat. And don't miss this. Jesus came so we could experience grace. We sang last week, grace, grace, that hymn. Grace, grace, God's grace. Jesus came to 
give us God's grace, that undeserved favor with God. So John says he's full of grace. And in that word, truth. He's full of it. There's nothing about Jesus that is untrue. Every statement he said, everything he does as God is true. He is full of grace and truth. Now the law of Moses is brought up here. We can't we'll have a lot of time. We're trying to wrap this up. But the law of Moses in the Old Testament, what was that? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, especially Leviticus. The law of Moses was laborious, right? Aren't you glad you didn't live in the Old Testament? I mean, I would have messed up constantly. I'm not a details person. You can ask anyone on staff here. Adam is a big picture guy. Not a details guy. That's why I have people like Linda Keller around. Details. Not my thing. Well, Leviticus is a book of details, right? How many of you like to read the book of Leviticus? You lie. No, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing you, Larry. Leviticus, okay, I am not a big fan of Leviticus. That's great, Larry, you like to read Leviticus. It's so laborious. There's rules, it's oppressive, it's difficult. I mean, I would have been in trouble if I lived in the Old Testament. I would have forgotten to do something. I would have. So what was the law of Moses? Why was Leviticus written? Why do we have the law of Moses? Well, it's simply this. God's graciously revealing his character. And his righteous requirement to his covenant people, Israel. God was showing in Leviticus to his people, I am holy and you are not. I am holy, you are sinful. So though we laugh and we make jokes about the book of Leviticus, it's really important. It's really, really important. So the law of Moses in the Old Testament was given through Moses. John is saying Jesus is better than Moses. He's full of grace and truth. So he comes, and though Moses had a law for God's covenant Israel, Jesus came to establish a new covenant law a new, for his new covenant people, the church. Did you know we're the new covenant people, the church? You had the covenant people Israel in the Old Testament and then the covenant people in the New Testament is the church. We are God's covenant people and we are given not a law, but grace and we're given truth. And John caps all this off in verse 18 and the whole point here. Jesus is God and he reveals who God truly is. So John is wrapping up this section, this prologue, this introduction to you and I. And he's saying, Leewood Church, and he's not really saying that. But what he's saying is, do you really want to know what God is like? Do you want to know the truth about God? Do you want to know God? Look to Jesus. He reveals who God is. Jesus as the Word, he is God. He has revealed and explained God to humanity. So the question is, who was, yes, the question is, who was Jesus? But really now the question has to be, John says, here, who, here is Jesus, here's who he is. But the next question that we're going to have to be confronted with as we go through the rest of the Gospel of John is, what are we going to do with it? This is who Jesus is, now what are you going to do with him? 
And John establishes right off the bat, he says, believe him, receive him, don't reject, don't suppress the truth about Jesus, believe, believe. And each of our quests for truth, as we search out what truth is, we need to each grow to know Jesus in a deeper way. We can know Jesus like John knew Jesus. And we'll continue on to that search and that journey together through this gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being God. We, right now, as a faith family, recognize your deity. That you are not just one of God's kids that he sent to this earth for us, but that you are God. And we recognize and acknowledge that. And Lord, I pray for each one of us in this room this morning. I pray that you would reveal to us who you are. We want to know truth. We want to know about you. We want to know about the world you created the life that you provide, and I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. God, I pray for anyone that is here that they have not yet believed in Jesus. I pray that you would open their eyes. Holy Spirit, reveal to them who Jesus Christ is and that they would believe. That they would not reject their Creator, but they would believe their Creator. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers. I pray for us as the church. I pray that you would strengthen our belief, that we would continue, that we would abide in you, that we would continue to believe in you. Strengthen our faith, God, as our world can be turned upside down with a snap of the fingers. God, we need a one constant and one consistent in our life, and that is you. And I pray that as we grow to know Jesus in a deeper way, that you would strengthen our faith and call us to worship you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask.